Hello and a warm welcome to everyone. My name is Alina Rodriguez and I am a Principal Research Fellow in Politics and Governance here at ODI. And I'm also Acting Program Director for the ODI-led Learning, Evidence and Advocacy Partnership, or DEEP. It is a real pleasure to be here with all of you to launch the three-part webinar series intended to showcase findings and lessons from the UK-funded Partnership to Engage, Reform, and learn, or PER. I believe that more than, fun, that more than 400 people have signed up for the, event, for the event today, and we have good representation from donors, academic and international organizations, as well as the private sector in Nigeria and well beyond. I also want to give a special thanks uh, to uh, colleagues from PEARL, FCDO, and ODI who are able to be with us today. So let me start perhaps by saying a little bit about Pearl for those of you who may not be as familiar with the program as uh, some of us are. Pearl was established as a five-year governance program in Nigeria uh, starting in 2016, and it has now been extended in a slightly different incarnation for a further two years. Building on almost two decades of, of DFID and now FCDO investment in Nigeria and lessons learned, the program is meant to be an innovative initiative that seeks to bring together governments and citizens groups to collectively address governance challenges associated with the delivery of basic services at both the federal and the state level. Pearl was explicitly set up as a program bringing together the supply or the state-led and the demand side or the civil society-led um, sides of, of governance together in, in a single program. And it is also intended to be a politically smart and adaptive program that is anchored in learning. Pearl has a unique three pillar, one program structure that consists of three different pillars, accountable, responsive and capable government or ARC, which is led by DAI, engaged citizens or ECP, which is led by Palladium and LEAP which is led by ODI. LEAP, is, led to, LEAP is, uh, is meant to lead on learning across Pearl. As such, we have worked very closely with ARC and ECP colleagues to ensure that the program has the space to reflect, iterate, and adapt in real time in response to both uh, internal reflection and research emerging from within the program. With LEAP coming to a close at the end of this month, we are very excited about the webinar series that we are launching today. The research that LEAP has undertaken over the past two years on Pearl and predecessor programs is at the cutting edge of development thinking and practice. And as such, we hope that it can contribute to many pressing debates and also help inform ongoing and future governance programming. Over the course of the next three weeks, we will host three webinars that we'll each ask in turn Firstly, how can, governance reforms be, how can governance reforms be supported effectively, including in terms of bringing more closely together the demand side and the supply side of governance in terms of citizen voice, state, account, state capacity, accountability, and responsiveness? Secondly, how can international development actors think in more politically aware ways and design and implement complex reform programs that are anchored in learning and adaptation? And thirdly, is governance linked to improve services, and if so, how? Today, we will look at this first question, 
And so without further ado, let me uh, tell you a little bit about the first webinar that we have um, planned for today on how governance reform happens, drawing on lessons from 20 years of UK funded programming in Nigeria. And I would also like to welcome our panelists. We are very excited. We have a very exciting lineup today to help launch our Pearl flagship pub, uh, publication, which focuses on this very question of 20 years of UK funded um, investment in governance programming in Nigeria and what impact it has had. Uh, the executive summary should now be available online and the publication in full will become available shortly as well. So first, let me introduce Laurelaine Piron, who is technical director for, for LEAP and also director of the policy practice. Well, she's also an old friend of ODIs and worked here many moons ago, um, and also uh, worked as a governance advisor for the FID for many years. Laurelaine is the lead author of the flagship report. And after her, we will hear from Awalu Hamsa, who is a partner state facilitation manager for Pearl in the state of Kano, and is also one of the authors of the report. We then have asked Idayat Hassan, who is the director of the Center for Democracy and Development, and Sam Waldock, who is head of governance and stability at FCDO Nigeria, and also co-author of an excellent paper that many of you might be familiar with from the developmental leadership program called Everyday Political um, Analysis. So that will be our lineup. And before I turn to Lorelen uh, for some questions, I also want to let you know that we very much welcome your comments and questions, and we will hopefully have the time to go over some of those as part of the discussion today uh, after we hear from our panelists. So please do use the chat box functionality to raise any questions or comments that you may have. Um, and if you feel comfortable doing so, please also let us know uh, who you are, what, what your role and affiliation might be. So without further ado, let me turn to our first panelist, Laurelaine, and let me ask you a question um, after you have tackled this mammoth research project of 20 years of governance progress in Nigeria. Tell us what is so unique about this research project and the flagship. Thank you very much, Elena, and it's really exciting to be here today. So I think the first thing you've already mentioned is that the UK has been able to work in Nigeria for 20 years on the same issues in the same states. So that gives us a unique way of actually observing how change happens. And I'm just going to give you an overview of the different programs the UK worked on. So first of all, in 1999, Nigeria was coming out of military rule. And at that time, we started designing a program called the State and Local Government Program to really build capacity at the state level to meet the demands from citizens. That it was in 2001, the program started. In 2008, it was replaced by two programs. The first one called SPARC was the State Partnership for Accountability, Responsiveness and Capability, worked with what you explained, Alina, as the supply side, working with government systems. And it worked alongside SAVI, which is the State Accountability and Voice Initiative. And these programs run together, collaborating on similar issues until 2016, when Pearl, the program you've just described, was launched and is still ongoing. So it's a remarkable long-term period to be looking at these programs which worked on the same set of issues. But alongside these governance programs, UK Aid also funded a large number of health, education, humanitarian programs. 
And in a webinar next week, we'll be talking about how these governance programs and the health education programs collaborated. The second element that's really interesting for our research is that we were able to look at four states. So we've got here the map of Nigeria, four states where the UK invested consistently. So first in Chigawa State in 2001, it was one of the early DFID focal states when sort of aid resumed to Nigeria, followed by work in Kano in 2005 and Kaduna in 2006. These are two really large, well-established states with sort of a, an urbanized um, population, highly more educated than in Jigawa. Um, and then the UK extended its program to Yobe in the Northeast in 2011 in response to the Boko Haram insurgency. So what we have here, all these programs, three generational programs working consistently in those states. And just a final comment, Alina, just about the research team we had. We were 11 researchers, Nigerians and sort of international. And we work really closely with the Walu and other staff members from Pearl who've been working on these programs for 20 years. So we're able to check our insights with them over time. Back to you, Alina. That is excellent, Logan, and thank you also for letting us know about the richness of the team that you worked with, because that was part of the very exciting um, um, uh, process that we were able to put in place to do this research. Um, can you tell us a little bit about whether and how governance improved in, the, in, in these four different states that you have highlighted as the focus area of, of UK government investment? Absolutely. So what we used is as a model for our work is sort of a service delivery chain. So on the right hand side here on the screen, you can see how the state system links from the federal level into state governments. Niger is a federal system. State governments are really important to manage resources and deliver services. And all at the bottom of the chain, sort of service providers like schools and clinics providing health education to people. So I'm just focusing this today on the governance changes we were able to track. And two weeks from now, my colleague Gareth Williams will be talking about how we track changes from governance into health and education. But the areas of work that the programs have focused on um, are first of all, public financial management and policy and planning. That's really how the money flows through the system from the federal level down to actually paying for services. Then they also all worked on public sector management. So that means how the state governments are organized and how civil servants are motivated to deliver services. And then finally, empowerment and accountability. And you can see on the right-hand side there of my diagram, you've got the green arrows coming from what we call the accountability system. So that's citizens raising their views directly or through the media or through their representatives. So that's a schematic uh, summary of what the governance system looked like at the state level. And what we did is that we assessed the contribution of the UK programs. And what we found, is that we could actually demonstrate a firm or partial contributions of these three generations of programs to really a number of changes in terms of the institutions, the rules of the game, how the government functions and what citizens expect from their governments. So Jigawa State, uh, where the UK started its work in 2001, had the most sustained progress across a range of governance indicators. And that included how the budget was planned, but also how the money was actually spent. And Jigawa increases expenditure on health and education by a really large amount. The second progress was seen in Kaduna State, where there was reform after 2015. Um, and in the third webinar, Lina, we'll be talking a bit about how they manage that in the education sector, for example. Yoruba State, which had been affected by the insurgency, 
and received less support because it started later, had the least, had some governance progress nonetheless around the budget process. And then finally, Kano State, a really large important state, had the least progress on the governance indicator. And I just want to share sort of two other bits of findings we had. The most remarkable finding was that all the durable changes, so from 10 to 20 years, all had an element of voice and accountability. So that means strengthening civil society or the media to hold governments to account, but also in some of the core governance areas with government systems, such as public financial management, it was those elements that had transparency, accountability, participation that performed better. So for example, work around transparent budgets and participation in the budget process. Where we found either no progress or much less progress over the period were in the parliamentary oversight. So parliaments were involved, state house of assembly were involved in the budget process, but not so much in terms of, sort of monitoring how the budgets were implemented. Also the execution of the budget was sort of performed less well than a preparation of the budget. And there was sort of no progress around how ministries were organized and how human resources were developed. There we know there may be an issue with indicators we use, but we just, in the research and the data we had, we couldn't find progress on those areas. Back to you, Alina. Thank you, Lauren. And that's, uh, that's uh, a lot of really fascinating stuff. And I think uh, we're going to have a bit of a cliffhanger because we are, need, we are focusing on governance improvements um, as part of this discussion today. And um, during our third webinar, we will discuss how such govern governance improvements may have translated into improvements in service delivery. So that will be a good way of keeping the audience engaged. Could you tell us a little bit about the main factors that help to explain why governance improved in the way that it, that it did where you saw that in your research? Yeah, thanks Alina. And this is where just for some of you on the call, I know you'll want to hear about our methodology and so just bear with me for 30 seconds. We use a really interesting combination of process tracing, where you look at changes and you try to trace back how these changes came about. And we did that through targeting some reform areas and having sort of extensive document review and interviews. I think we looked at more than 250 documents. Uh, but we combine that with something really interesting called realist synthesis, where you look at the combination of interventions, context, causal mechanisms, and the outcomes. So here on this diagram, we have in green the interventions. So the UK interventions I mentioned around public financial management or the public sector or citizens' voice. And also these interventions always operate within a specific context of Nigeria. So these are the turquoise arrow, uh, which is the end of military rule or the oil crash prices or COVID-19. So interventions have a different effect depending on the context. And together, the idea that they stimulate change by activating what we call causal mechanisms. And I'll be saying a few, a bit more about those um, in the next slide. And these mechanisms sort of trigger change and generates what we hope are sort of intermediate outcomes that are put here in red. Sort of you get progress, say, through intervention, the budget system is prepared better. And then through other interventions, you actually are able to get the budget to prioritize the most important areas of work. And then through other interventions, you're able to, to get citizens to monitor how education and health services are provided. So this is a service delivery chain, which hopefully will lead, and you can see it on the right-hand side, to better health education and general better services. 
Salina, I'm just going to pick two causal factors that really, really mattered for us. And in the report, you'll be able to see we've got much more because we looked at four categories of causal mechanisms. We looked at political factors, bureaucratic factors, financial incentives, whether getting more money from the federal government or from the donors would make a difference to reform. And then finally on state society relationships, the pressure put on governments by citizens and others to get better services and get a better policies. So the first finding was that the contextual factors that mattered the most in the results I've just presented was the level of political competition. So Nigeria, we describe in the report as having a competitive clientelistic political settlement system. So it's competitive, you've got different elites competing for power, you have elections, but it's a clientelistic system because oil resources, gas resources finance the state and different elite groups try to access that, those resources. In those states like Jigawa or Yobe that have less competition, in part because they're more rural, less industrialized, um, the elites sort of fight less over resources, the patronage systems are a bit more stable, and there was less competition and there was more room for reform. So that would be Jigawa state that has the same three governors over 20 years, or Yobe state had the same political party in power for 20 years. So political competition and the lack thereof was a key factor linked to reform. And then we tried to dig deeper to understand why was it that governors might want to push for some reforms that are actually not really uh, in their interest, such as more transparent budgets or being more open to criticism. And we looked at a number of, of factors, uh, whether they get personal credit, they're more likely to win elections, if they get more money for their constituencies, some states like in Jigawa, and Awali will talk a bit more about Jigawa in a minute, were really committed to broader-based development, reaching resources, making sure resources reach rural areas, men and women in rural communities. And sometimes initiatives like in Kano were allowed just because they were not too risky for governors, so they had low political cost. So that's the first set of really interesting findings we have around political competition and political credit for reforms. The other set of factors, contextual factors and political incentives that we've sort of seen and we really think the report and research stresses is the importance of civic society space. So you need to have a minimum space for civil society to engage, for the media to operate. But within that, the programs were really able to strengthen collaborative relationships between on the one hand citizens, either operating through community-based organizations or through their state house of representatives or in connection with the media. And what the programs did was to generate new invited spaces where civil society was invited to engage with government processes, say around a budget process or giving feedback on the construction of roads. So the programs really had that distinguished um, approach to be collaborative, generate those invited spaces. Some initiatives went a bit further and you had monitoring, so eyes and ears, monitoring what was going on on the ground and also with the power to sanction. So teeth here in the example where civil society monitoring could actually lead to say some contractors being punished and have their contracts removed. And then finally, what you explained clearly at the beginning, Alina, you said the demand and supply sides are brought together in Pearl. And it's exactly one of the key features of why those programs are successful is because they worked on both government reform and on the demand side, civil society pressure. And I'll just give you now the third reason for me why I think these programs really were able to motivate change. And we'll be discussing this in more depth next week with you, Alina. 
which is that these programs were able to sort of think and work politically. And by that, I mean to develop really good understanding of the states in which they operated. That was because the UK had a really long-term presence in Jigawa for 20 years, in the other states for 15 years. They knew the stakeholders, they had political relationship with the governors and government at large. And then the implementers have had state teams with experts from the state who stay in the state. And that's why I'm so excited that Awalu will be speaking next because he's been involved for 20 years in those reforms. So these colleagues really have good relationships of trust with the government, with the society, and they can facilitate change locally. There's been a systematic use of political economy analysis and also learning, reflecting, trying, testing, trying to do better each time over the three generations of programs. And then finally, um, and some of you on the call will know this, but it's really, DFID Nigeria is very well known for this innovative work, which sort of influenced DFID as a whole, but also the, the global community. And I think that's one of the reasons why I think I'm working politically has become much better known, thanks to all the experiments in Nigeria. I just want to end with a word of caution, Alina, just a final point, and I'll revert back to you, which is the environment is becoming more constraining for these kinds of programs. And that's something I'll return to. But we've got tensions between thinking and working politically and then getting paid for the results the programs achieved. Uh, the programs are more constrained. And I'm personally very worried about the budget cuts from FCDO and the unpredictability that generates for programs. So we've seen UK programs do really well because they were able to think and work politically, but this is becoming much more difficult. Thank you, Laurelaine. Uh, before I move to Awalu, I just wanted to highlight again that we have the chat function open and it would be really great to um, hear from the audience if you have any questions or reflections that emerge as a result of the um, insights and, and findings that Laurelaine has shared. One of the most interesting ones for me is a bit counterintuitive, which is that the more competitive um, electorally um, as a context is, uh, the less likely it is to be able to carry out reform, which is, you know, sort of um, man bites, uh, mind bites, bites dog kind of finding. So I thought that was very interesting. Uh, Awalu, it's a real pleasure to, to have you join us from Nigeria today. And as Laurelaine has mentioned, you started working there right in the first DFID program, SLGP, back in 2002. Um, let me ask you a little bit about Jigawa, which is the state which has achieved the most progress in terms of governance indicators. Can you give us a bit of a, of a sense of, of what, kind, what kinds of reforms you have worked on there and why you think um, those proved to be um, as successful as they have been? Thank you so much. Thank you, Alina. I think uh, perhaps I will start with uh, the reasons why uh, there, there was so much success in Jigao. And to say that I think from 2020, uh, from 2001 to 2008, one of the uh, principal uh, enablers was the establishment of what was called the Bureau for State and Local Government Reform. Now, that team uh, was comprised of key senior officials officials with a very good understanding of the governor's space and with the understanding of the mandate given to them by the governor to engage with the governor's program. Now, another important point uh, in relation to this was how consistent and continuous that team has worked with the state and local government program. It worked for those eight years unbroken. And uh, they also, uh, these uh, members of this team 
had a clear understanding of their respective authorization levels. They understood how much authorization they have to be able to implement various reform recommendations in their respective agencies without having to wait or resort back to the governor. I think this was the key. Now, in relation to their respective roles as individuals away from the team was in taking away reform recommendations uh, mainly in the public financial management uh, space, we have seen how members from this team have been able to work with the state and local government reform to transform the budget process to a point where they have a functional public financial management information system that has reduced the time for preparing financial reports, improved accuracy, and improved transparency. We have seen how the members of that team have been able to transform the budget process to, re, to, uh, to a point where the state government is reporting over 85% of budget performance year in, year out over the years. And we have seen also, principally for, for a governance program, how, um, because it's the institutional home for, for, for a governance program, the uh, budget and economic planning directed, that also there was uh, uh, an unbroken leadership for over 15 years, 16 years. So in terms of implementing reform initiative, in terms of the sequencing and the incremental changes, that was unbroken. So that was also responsible in seeing to this improvement. We've also seen how a member of that team has partially contributed into establishing one of the most prominent and robust uh, contributory pension system in the country. We have seen how members are uh, taking away uh, reform uh, recommendations from, from the partnership with the state and local government program has resulted in the establishment of the due process and procurement pro, um, um, bureau in, in Jigawa State, which has improved uh, transparency in pro procurement. It has improved a lot of savings for government and it has uh, along with the improvements in the budget, uh, improved the overall financial, uh, public financial process uh, in, in the state. So I think in a, in a nutshell, these are some of the key factors, yeah. especially from 2001 to 2008, that can't be said to have uh, brought about uh, the, the successes where we are reporting for the girls state. Thank you. Thank you, Awalu, and it's really great that you can have this long-term perspective and see things, um, you know, fully dec uh, two decades later. So that's really uh, an amazing perspective to be able to speak from. Tell me a little bit about Kano, which um, is meant to be one of the states that has made the least progress in terms of governance reforms. And um, if I understand correctly, you've been working there with Pearl since 2016. Why do you think Kano has proven so challenging in terms of... of uh, promoting governance reforms there. Thank you. Well, I, I think uh, the, the discussion about Kano is not so much about uh, uh, reporting uh, uh, less success in reforms, but it's about understanding the context. It's about understanding the, the sheer pressure on, on governance by the population in, in, in Kano, and also understanding how much um, uh, there, there has been uh, an unbroken presence of various uh, uh, interest groups in Kano in over centuries, and uh, how much the political pressure 
on the governance system in Kano, it's not just about political pressure from within. It's also about political pressure from outside, especially where presidential elections are, are concerned. And there is, a, you know, uh, an eye on, on Kano to, to, to provide the, the, the largest number of votes. So Kano is, is, is faced with all this. And uh, also you, the, the expectation, both from citizens and also from programs, is to want to impact, uh, you know, happen as, as, as fast as it's happening in Jigao. But the, the thing about Kano is that, a good example, over one million um, uh, out of school children. So any program that targets to bring, uh, support bring 300,000 pupils back into the classrooms, you know, it, 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 it depends. Some might say, oh, only 300,000. Others want to see the whole one million brought back to school. So there's also a question of perspective and high expectations about what Kano should, should deliver. So I think these are some of the issues that should be uh, brought to the table in a discussion about uh, how Kano has fared in, in, in relation to uh, governors, uh, uh, you know, implementing governors initiatives. Thank you. Thank you very much, Awalu. That's very succinct and, and, a, and a very uh, good reminder, actually. Um, before I turn to Idayat, I just wanted to also highlight that uh, LEAP has led some really interesting research in all these different states that um, and has produced different uh, reports that are available on the Pearl website. So um, in particular, there are case studies on, on Kano and Yobe. Uh, so if you are curious to see what outputs have been produced as a result of, of Pearl in terms of research, you can find them there. Idayat, let me um, turn to you as, as our first uh, discussant, let's say, to try to anchor some of the findings emerging from the um, from the research that, that uh, LEAP has done through Pearl in the context of, of Nigeria today. It looks very, very much so, uh, very much like a striking finding um, from the research is the importance of media, civil society, legislators working with the state governments to make uh, governance change happen. Yet, since 2015, the space for media and civil society has been shrinking in Nigeria. Is this a surprising finding for you? Oh, thank you very much, Alina. I think, importantly, uh, the successes of Jigawa Kano cannot be taken away, irrespective of the challenges that the civic space currently faces. One, the culture of accountability and a very enlightened political society makes a very good mix for people to demand accountability. It's part and parcel of the culture. I'm sure Awalu will speak to it. And the program were quite successful in that regard, but not necessarily in terms of improvement of human development. Uh, really, or it gave, it gave voice to the people through the platform adopted. Now, it's also important that most of the drawback that has been experienced has been since 2015 from the report. And this is based on, I think, uh, different uh, sets of issues. One is, of course, a rising wave of populism, which in some instances, again, built on cultural system and helped in entrenching authoritarianism in the civic space, even in Northern Nigeria, Kano in particular. 
itself. So you find the fact that, yes, the, the wave of change, the way change came, gradually people started seeing things as we versus them, and opportunities for engagement became reduced, which again has a political factor attached to it. I think reformer governments, the political incentives previously experienced in the later years disappeared. Secondly, then, will be a new wave. A slew of legislations came up, which were not normal again. So immediately, we had more than six legislation at the national level trying as much as possible to restrict the civic space from the anti-social media bill, hate speech bill, of course, civil society regulation bill, two different ones. Um, the camera, of course, eventually passed. The civic space became restricted. And this same thing at the state level. So where voice was present, where social media gave people the opportunity to engage. You see, like the Akasa Fefe program, which Savvy again supported CDD, partly to continue as part of collaboration, built on Facebook and Hausa language. It became difficult because anything you now say on Facebook, people can actually be arrested and they are locked up. So social media was a plus, but it also became a, a, a minor, especially with surveillance again. And different legislations, which also used populism, when you look at it, cultural factor. So you have the Blacks Family Law. You had all those kind of things, restrict freedom of expression and freedom, uh, and not freedom of expression, at times even freedom of association, and made the civic space become quite restricted. So while we had some positive changes pre-2015, most of those changes disappeared post-2015, bringing timing into context. But there were still positives because in places like Jigawa, the government has now invited engagement as part and parcel of governance. And a recent example, which I'll conclude with, will be again setting up, trying to set up an anti-corruption commission at the state level and bringing in every actor from civil society to the traditional institution, to the religious institution at the consultation level. Thank you so much, Idaya. That's a very important point um, that you went on. Um, let me move swiftly to Sam. Sam, you've been working on governance for the FID since 2007 and you've led the governance team in Nigeria since April 2020. What were some of the most unexpected findings of the research for you as a person who is responsible for designing and overseeing the implementation of UK governance programs in Nigeria? I hope that the interference is, is, uh, is okay. Right. So you can uh, hear me okay. Um, so uh, there's three things really, I think, trying to so the first thing that jumps out is perhaps the most obvious, but I think is uh, still very much worth it. It's like governance programming uh, works, it works. Um, and I think this thing happens because uh, governance failures underpin a whole range of development challenges. And in my experience, governance practitioners um, can sometimes have a bit of uh, existential angst 
on the question of impact, even if they're true believers. So it's very rare to have this kind of detailed process tracing that we have here, and also to look at impact over two decades. Mm -hmm. So um, I think this is, is an important contribution, actually. Um, and, and at risk of stating the obvious, uh, Nigeria is, of course, a very hard place to achieve governance impact. So the fact that there's a good body of evidence here on impact, not in every area, not in every time, but you know, a good core of impact, I think is, is good news and is important beyond Nigeria. So that, that's the first thing. The second thing I want to say is that um, these studies confirm some of the things we suspected, um, areas of governance orthodoxy, but for areas where the evidence base is sometimes a bit more patchy than we might hope. So I think firstly, these studies are showing the value of staying the course, investing over the long run. We kind of know that to be true, but it's actually quite hard to prove it. And so, um, you know, this kind of long-term investment requires real patience in terms of programming, but it also requires organizations to think long-term in terms of their strategy. And in this case, held a very firm long-term focus in the Nigerian state for a long time. And this is, you know, looks great now, but the reality is also quite messy. So there are some states where we didn't have a consistent investment, like Zambia, we pulled out because we weren't having the impact. There was an opportunity cost, so like in the south, we achieved uh, great results, but it's less poor, so we, uh, we pulled back there. So there's some quite crunchy trade-offs here. And of course, the UK also saw some quite big change too. You know, we saw five prime ministers, 13 secretaries of state covering development. Each has different priorities. But there is another sort of deeper story here beyond that political change in the UK of, of a longer-term strategic decision, recognizing northern Nigeria massive poverty reduction of the UK interest. Um, but it's sort of strategic decision because of our interest, I think, in northern Nigeria rather than luck. And I, I mean, I won't go into them in detail, but I think this report also confirms some other areas of governance orthodoxy, like the importance of matching supply and demand side work, the importance of anchoring successful reforms in a clear constituency change. So then the last thing I want to share is just around our approach to these studies, because as development people, we often care about two questions. The first is how does change happen? And the second is what role can outsiders play in change? And there's always a big impact in governance about whether, uh, a big debate in governance, sorry, about whether we can uh, measure impact well and also whether learning from one place is relevant to other places. And so in governance, you often get these kind of two tribes, these two extremes. You get people that think everything is generalizable through randomized control trials. I rarely hear anyone kind of articulate the point too starkly. It's a bit of a straw man. The other extreme is that you can't generalize at all and everything's context, so it doesn't matter. But if you're a government professional in the field, if you're very busy, trying to work out what's your Monday morning, the fact that everything is contextual is quite quite difficult. And I also think in governance we can be a little bit busy sometimes. So we can decide that um, understanding uh, the context that our impact happens in is, is too hard, it's too expensive, not generalizable. So sometimes I think we, we take correlation, just to sort of being in the room when reports happen is, is evidence of genuine influence. And sometimes it is, but sometimes it isn't. And of course, social science methods mean we can do better than that. And, and these studies, I think, are a real gold standard on that. By tracing the, the processes around change in this study, we're starting to see where we actually impacted stuff and where we didn't. 
And sometimes, you know, we're in the room or in the same state working on the same issue, but the causal process tracing has shown actually we didn't have the change. But because we have such a rich pattern of case studies, what we're starting to see then is, is patterns emerging where stuff works, where it didn't. And in this study, we identified 15 causal mechanisms, patterns around where we had influence. And in my view, and I'll end with this, is that in thinking and working politically, we need to be better at sharing these patterns of impact and failure, like we're doing here. They're not prescriptions, but they're kind of a mid-level theory. They're not too abstract, not too big picture, but they're also not so micro in the weeds. This sort of mid-level theory gives us a starting point. As practitioners, it gives us questions to ask, avenues to probe. And as a practitioner on the front line, I think this is really invaluable. I think it makes our programming better and it also makes our development diplomacy better. So I hope you enjoy the, uh, the research as much as we have. Thank you, William. Thank you so much, uh, Sam, uh, for joining. And despite the, the, the technical difficulties, and it's good to have you on board, even if, if it's on the phone and we can't have you on video. Um, Simon Maxwell, who is a former director of ODI, loved to ask this uh, what to do Monday morning question. I was not too partial to it, but, <laughs> but it's good to see that it has resonated. Um, and I think this issue that you raise about the importance of understanding why context matters beyond that kind of statement is really important. And this is where I think that the research that is being undertaken as part of, of the PER program is really important because it enables um, a much more in-depth drilling into um, how it is that context does matter at, even at the subnational level. So um, this will be all good reading for everybody once the flagship is published, which I have to say is not a light document. So um, hope you like your reading. Um, okay, so we have some questions from the audience. Um, and I do encourage other people to, to chip into the chat um, if you like. Uh, some people have uh, been able to identify themselves, others have not. But the first question comes from someone called Chris, and I have to say that was one question I wanted to ask, so I'm very happy that he has raised this. Um, and he is asking, how important is parliamentary oversight in governance reform, and why do you think FCDO programs did not make much progress there? So I think this is a really interesting question because uh, Parliament's really at the core of bringing state and society together and channeling demand. So this is an interesting question. It would be interesting to hear um, reflection on that. Um, then we have a question from Sonia. Um, I have a bit of an inkling of who that might be, but I will just leave it at Sonia. And she uh, asks, the success of empowerment and accountability interventions at the state level appears to be in contradiction with a wider trend of declining civic space in Nigeria. How can this be explained? And if I may add a little bit to that there, um, I'm wondering if there's something about... Um, the Nigerian government feeling comfortable with invited spaces of engagement while clapping down on um, citizen empowerment that may not necessarily be uh, seen as, as collaborative, but more um, uh, based on contestation. So it would be really good to hear from our panelists on that, especially from Idayat, um, if, I, if I may uh, call on her for that as well. And then we have a, a, another question from someone who did give their full name and is a good friend of, of ODIs and many other people in this uh, in this panel, Nick McCulloch, who is asking, how important is the role of leadership at the state level? Kaduna has a famously reform-minded governor. Other states don't always have this. 
to what extent is progress dependent on the particular mindset and competence of key individuals? And would this prompt other contextual factors, I suppose? Um, all right, those are the three questions we have gotten. I think they give us a very nice um, uh, a platform to start uh, to start engaging with the questions. Um, and so uh, let me um, perhaps start uh, with, with uh, um, Idayat at this point on those three, um, depending on which ones you want to answer, if you want to reflect on those three. But I will just randomly call on all of you so that we can disrupt the order a little bit. And also, I will also please invite other people to make further comments or questions. Thank you. Idayat, over to you. Thank you very much. I think importantly, leadership at the state level did matters a lot. And that's what distinguishes working in northern Nigeria from southern Nigeria. The political incentive which, this, uh, which the report identified is very key. And with reformer governors, it's easy to actually make change happen. So Kwakwanso in Kano, um, the um, Lamido, Sule Lamido, even up to the current governor, in Jigawa State, where reformers governors, not just uh, Governor Elrufai of Kaduna State. So this leadership and the political incentive of knowing that every small thing a politician does, there is something in it, and it brings them closer to their constituency, enabled reform to actually happen in some certain instances. And I think the political sentiment approach is also just apt to describe the process because you are not just doing it, you're getting something and you're creating some pockets of effectiveness in this. So leadership did matter. Then again, when we talked about, when we talk about civil society, we are not talking about formal organized civil society, the way we talk about civil society at the national level. We are talking about broad-based grassroots organization. We are talking about individual who constitute themselves into civil society and are pushing for accountability. And they do have fear of influences. So everybody has got some fear of influence. You talk about the traditional, you talk about the religious institutions. So these are local people. And legitimacy is also important to point out in why we see successes at the state level and where there is actually few attempts at climbing down on these successes that we are talking about at the state level. So with the legitimacy, with the connection, with a broad-based group also which these programs worked with. So in most cases, they were either building on existing initiative or they are collaborating with individuals, with groups. These are people with fear of influence that no political actor at any point in time may want to climb down on in those states, but they are not also absolute. In other parts of the country, there are lots of infractions. And that is where this whole thing about contest matters. And contest is important. And contest and knowledge and partnership, which was not confrontational, which was more about state civil society approach. We know people want voice. We gave them a platform to engage. We enabled coalition for change to happen. All these are what is actually important. And the legitimacy question is what has made the civic space not to be as restricted as it could be at the national level. 
Thank you very much, Idayat. I wonder, Awalu, if I can invite you to follow up on that uh, to give us a grounded uh, Nigerian perspective. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Alina. Um, I think it's uh, important to make a distinction between the governor's program perspective about the civic space and uh, the perspective of an analyst. Now, both are legitimate yeah, and the positions uh, can both be found useful in trying to understand the, the, the space. Now, for a governor's program, again, thinking and working politically, I think our main focus was to enable, as uh, Adiyat has mentioned, to enable for citizens, citizens groups, and of course, uh, local groups to engage in the governance process and to ensure that this is not uh, left vague is to be able to find out instances, arrangements and processes that citizens can fit into. The good example that a governance program like Pearl is providing is how much uh, we have been able to bring from 2006, for example, in Kano, when only a, uh, a few citizens groups engage in the budget process, we now have citizens groups from all the 45, uh, 44 local governments providing input from respective focus group discussions from their local governments to make inputs into the budget. And uh, they independently are able to review the budget and can uh, sift the, 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 the contributions that they have made into the budget and they go on to monitor to establish how much of the contribution that they have brought into the budget are actually being implemented. So again, in terms of uh, discussing or explaining what the space is like, I think uh, with, with the governor's program, we are recording improved participation, improved engagement, and uh, the, the, the area where we have been very careful and uh, you know, not, not to, to ensure that we, we bring civil society in conflict with government, it's where we take the back seat when, when, when elections are, are, are going on or when campaigning is going on, where civil society have the legitimate right to, to take sides away from government. And obviously they, they can uh, air their views which government may not like. So that's the area where we, we try to, to uh, move away from participating directly so that government doesn't perceive us as, as working to, to strengthen uh, uh, citizens groups that would air opposing views about them. But otherwise, I think uh, the space is, is improving, engagement is, is improving, and uh, this is what we are reporting as a governance program. Thank you. Thank you so much, Awalu. I wonder if I can press you on the parliamentary question. Do you have a sense of why that work has not picked up as much? Okay. Um, you know, somebody made a, a good observation. He said, regardless of how uh, governance has uh, progressed over time, during military and up to you know, the, the transition. Regardless of that, there has been a structure, an executive structure 
that house the, the principal officers and the principal pro, uh, processes of government. And so in terms of experience, in terms of consolidating that experience and bringing it to play, the executive has an upper hand. So the legislature, you could say that it is an infant joining, joining the space. Now, besides that, that point, you would also recognize that until recently, the legislature has been constrained in terms of uh, its, its funding and in terms of uh, managing its, uh, its administration. So only recently that uh, these uh, assembly service commissions are being approved for the states and uh, the independent uh, funding is also being pursued in states. But otherwise, it's also about context. They are caged. Now, besides the fact that they are caged, you would also uh, agree with me that there are inst instances of reporting how much governors are instrumental in actually selecting members that go into the state houses of assembly. So in terms of that uh, independent, in terms of that, uh, that currency that uh, the legislature has to be able to, to carry out their oversight functions, these are being curtailed by, by, the, by the powers that governors have in selecting and, and getting some of them uh, elected into the houses of assembly by, by, the, by curtailing the, the, their, their powers to be able to use their funds as they, as, as they see fit and uh, curtailed in terms of even uh, putting up a, a management structure in the, in the houses. And also, you find that the experience, the exposure, and the educational level in some of the state legislature is not as, as advanced for them to be able to, to sort of uh, quickly embrace the, 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 um, the, 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 um, the, the opportunities that are there for, for, for the legislature to, to check up their rightful position in terms of uh, providing the right oversight that is expected of them. Thank you. Thank you for that masterly uh, way of addressing the question, very, very rich and, and thought-provoking. Um, I wonder, Lorelin, can I turn to you to ask, uh, to address some of these questions, uh, hopefully all three of them, but um, uh, maybe you want to, to select a, a couple. Yes, on parliamentary, um, I really made the perfect response. I was going to, to make the same point. I just want to add that we saw progress in parliamentary engagement in the budget process. So that's an area of strength. But we saw less progress in the role of monitoring the implementation of budget, exactly for the reason that I well explained, but also because perhaps civil society groups were more empowered and more resources to actually monitor on the ground. So there's dimension there, and some will be able to add a bit more on the parliamentary question. Alina, I wanted to come back to the first question around leadership issues, because I think the question that Neil asked is critical. We have to balance individuals' characteristics and the context in which they work. So Governor Lamido in Nigeria, in Jigawa, had a commitment to state building, to developing his state, to broader-based development. And that, I think, is linked to his political ideology and slightly left of center, I understand, as opposed to other parties. So there was that with Lamido. But also the environment within which he operated, the state context, meant there's much less competition for power. So he followed down from another governor who was really, people said to me, he's a maverick. Um, Samina was a maverick, but created space for reform. And I well explained how the civil service was empowered to actually push through reforms. 
Salamido had the context where he had a civil service able to deliver this vision for change. He didn't have too much political competition. Once he was elected, the political elite backed him. So he didn't have to make too many compromises to be able to support his base by providing contracts. There would be leakages in the system, but the contractors and the implementers had to actually deliver. So that's what is critical for me is this combination of context and individual characteristics. So in Kaduna, which is the point that Neil raises, we have this governor, Rafai, since 2015, able to implement reforms. But that's the way in which he's been able to manage very competitive politics. Progress was much slower before 2015 in Kaduna State, as we show in the report. But the configuration of how in Kaduna changed, he was able to have a different political base. And through that, he's been able to sort of sack civil servants, appoint political actors to be able to carry his reform agenda. So I really want to, to make sure colleagues understand and people in the, on the call understand it's about individual characteristics and also the, the context. And the final quick point, just to add to Idaya, you were so eloquent and I were talking about the civil society space in the states, just about distinguishing the federal level versus what happens in the state level. In northern states, relationship between the officials with a sort of traditional ruler society is quite different. So I think in Nigeria, we really have to separate those two levels of, of operation. Thank you, Alina. Thank you very much, Lohanen. Um, very, very thoughtful as well. Um, Sam, I wonder if you would like to um, add any reflections um, based on the questions and what you have heard from the, from the um, panelists. Yeah, thanks. Um, on the parliament, it's or parliament is quite a, a timely one for us here because there is a real uh, lively debate in Nigeria around uh, the role of parliament and around constitutional reform. And of course, conceptually in governance, uh, parliament throughout the core, but it didn't work in these, these case studies, or at least as Laura Lenz said, it's a bit nuanced. And I think this is really why it's important to do this kind of research and to test our assumptions because sometimes the theory doesn't work in practice. And I think in practice here, parliament while kind of formally important in the constitution, didn't have the authority at the state level. So, um, and of course, FCPS was not able to influence that. And there are lots of development issues like that. So I think understanding the limits of our influence on these issues and understanding the reality, particularly looking at the reality of informal institutions rather than just formal is important here. On, on leadership, I mean, we've covered this quite extensively, but I think one of the things that the study really brings out is that leaders exist in an institutional context and that context limits their options uh, and their scope, it, their, their action is bounded. Um, so, you know, for every uh, case study here, it goes beyond one individual leader and looks at a longer term trend and you start to see, I think, patterns coming out that, you know, help us understand where an individual's kind of political strategy has helped navigate uh, certain structural constraints in the state and where actually this isn't about leaders at all, this is just about the state itself. And I think, you know, themes like the role of the civil service, the role of there being certain political constituencies to change come out. Um, and there's also a point here around path dependency. So there are there is an example, I think, from Chigawa, where um, actually early reform by governors set that state on, on a certain trajectory, and that was about the sort of structural drivers, but the, the individual decisions of individual leaders mattered too. So um, I think that, you know, the picture here is quite, is quite complex, but I think that the key thing that I'd like to pull out on this is that, you know, leadership matters, but, but very much in terms of uh, political leaders being very embedded and not kind of at it being abstracted as a standalone thing. Thanks.
Thank you so much, Sam, and um, also Lorelen for those sort of good reminders about the importance of leadership, but also um, the institutional framing uh, that enables leaders to, to do the work that they do. And I don't see further questions from our audience. So if that is the case, I want to be a bit cheeky. And um, I have, uh, we had um, one question that we wanted to ask the panelists in turn, but I will actually add a bit to that question that we had. So I hope um, that that is okay with everybody. So I want to ask uh, of our panelists, based on the research that you have heard, the first question is, do you think that this kind of 20 year investment in governance reform from the UK, from the UK has been worth it? So half empty, half full, and why? And what would be your main recommendation to make governance reforms happen uh, here, either to the UK government or other development partners or to the government and civil society in Nigeria? So um, we had wanted to give you um, a quick um, two minutes to go through that. So I hope that that's still um, sufficient time for all of you. Um, and let me perhaps start, uh, let's see. Uh, I want to look, can I start with you? Is that okay? All right, uh, I, I hope uh, those accountants are not uh, watching to, to, to uh, use their calculators to find out in terms of value for money. But you know, the, the, the point is, um, I think, uh, let, let me start by saying that uh, Early uh, in, in, in between 2001 and 2008, and this is all, this also linked to, to leadership. There, there were questions about whether uh, DFIDs then should uh, remain in Jigawa if uh, access to the governor is proven difficult, and by extension, uh, that would uh, uh, impact on whether uh, um, uh, reform initiatives will succeed in the Gao or not. And then there are others who said, it's not about the governor. The intervention is about uh, looking at those indices, these social indices, what's happening to, to, to pregnant women, what's happening to, to, to children, what, 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 what's happening with the educational system, and what's happening to, to growth generally in, in the states. So the point here is, uh, whether the governor's programs over these years, and not only the governor's programs, I think, uh, whether they have been able to move away from concentrating on using the availability or presence of a governor as a yardstick, or whether changes have happened. We, we could report to say that irrespective of the leadership, irrespective of the presence of a governor, changes have happened that uh, have improved uh, accountability in the public financial system and accountability in this context, not so much in terms of how uh, approval of funds uh, are given by governor to go to uh, I, I, um, uh, areas that, that have been designed to benefit from such funds, but whether the improvement in public financial management has improved 
allocation to the sectors, education and, and health, for example, and whether those resources have actually been uh, used to improve the lives of the people. Now, if, if those are the, the kinds of questions in relation to how much people have benefited and how the system has changed to, 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 the, to, uh, Im, uh, to impact on those changes, I think, yes, it, it, it has worked, it has uh, improved the processes. And also what, what uh, has happened during the 20s is to uh, reduce the suspicion that hitherto existed between government and civil society. It has reduced because one of the one of the contributions that a governance program has done was to be able to bring to the attention of government to say that, and, and believe me, a lot of government officials didn't they didn't understand that budget, for example, is a public document. Many government officials used to think that it's it's uh, it's, it's, it's an official secret document. Now. We have also been able to, to get them to understand that that's not the case. And we have been able to introduce various tools to them, uh, guidelines on, on developing state uh, development plans and how that has a clear component for citizens' engagement. And guidelines on pre uh, preparing medium-term sector strategies, guidelines for process, budget process itself, where they see that there are clear provisions for engaging with civil society. So that has, has helped a lot. And one other contribution that we have brought to the table was in providing information and, 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 and facilitating uh, the, the dissemination of that information to civil society. Civil society from, from the, the locations in which we were, Kano and Jigawa, for example, we have seen how civil society uh, would hitherto carry out advocacy without relevant parts and not and this is not a fault of theirs there there were instances previously where government information was not easily uh, made uh, available to them so improving access to information improving understanding of how government works improving uh, their the understanding of civil society on how there are provisions for them to legally within the, the arrangement of government for them to engage with government and engaging government on the other side to get them to understand that this is this is uh, in, in terms of uh, best practice, this is what should happen. I think you could say that uh, it, it's worth it. A lot of changes have taken place. Opportunities have been provided for a lot of movement in terms of uh, getting uh, processes to a point. Institutions have been established and uh, those institutions uh, have been able to contribute in improving the lives of people, both in health, education, and in governance generally. Thank you. Thank you so much, Abuelo. That's an extremely eloquent way of, of making the case, and it's a it's a very good case, and it's on on video and recorded, so we can uh, <laughs> we can resort back to it as we as we see fit. Um, I wonder if um, you would be able to uh, um, address the second question, which is. What would your recommendation be, either to the to the UK government or to other donors, or or to the government uh, or civil society in Nigeria, about how to improve governance more effectively? Okay, uh, uh, earlier on, I think uh, um, 
two days ago, I was uh, writing a mail to uh, Laurie, Helen, and I said, um, I, I was thinking that maybe in, in the engagement between governance programs and, and, and governments, we should stop using the word recommendation. You know, what, what I see happening is that, uh, and in terms of, yeah, permit me now to use recommendations, in terms of recommendations for going forward, I think we should uh, create a, a situation where governments are not waiting for recommendations from us. It, it, sh it should be, uh, we, we should operationalize that partnership, that concept of partnership. It should be government and, 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 and you know, developing partners sitting at the table and agreeing what the issues are and how to address those issues and who and, and, and sort of uh, allocated responsibilities, agreeing timelines and resources. So I think in terms of agreeing how to take forward or to mitigate a lot of uh, challenges and gaps existing within uh, the governance uh, processes, I think it should be uh, a mutual, mutual kind of uh, agreement uh, in terms of how that should be taken forward. And a key, key a, a example on how this, this needs to be emphasized is to say that there needs to be uh, uh, an, uh, an agreement whereby the program's calendar, you know, is complements the, 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 the uh, state calendar. Right now, programs like ours, we operate on a quarterly basis where we, we report on respective engagements that we've had with government. But government reports a yearly calendar. The book begins uh, maybe from February and then ends in December. So there are instances where you find that in terms of the pace, you are a program is expecting for government to deliver on certain reform recommendations that have been agreed. You find that it is not feasible or government feels pressured. And in other instances, this, this gives uh, government the excuse not to be able to implement. Because if you are asking for government to ensure that uh, uh, certain changes do happen, uh, maybe towards the end of the year, it's unlikely that government is, is able to do it unless they, 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 if it is something that is related to budget, they have to go for a supplementary budget. But to make it easier, I think we should look at how we, we can bring the, the, the calendars together and ensure that uh, they, are, they, they are speaking to, to one another. And I think also uh, that point that I made about Jigao uh, and the reform team from 2001 to 2008, I think it's important. Government should, should be made to understand that they, they need to be explicit. They need to own, they need to own their, their request because they understand best what the issues are for them. And that is what that reform team offered in Jigawa. They were high, they, they were competent people, each on the each one of them understood their own space and they were able to say that in public financial management, these are the issues and this is what we would like to see. Now there are instances uh, for a lot of reasons uh, why, where this, this, this is not happening. And it's where you have uh, uh, leadership disposition to, 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 to whether uh, a leadership, particular leadership is for reform or not. You've seen how we've seen uh, instances where a require in, in, in Kaduna, for example, will actually read 
uh, will go through the budget and actually make specific requests of a governor's program. We'll say that this is, this is what we want. And we have instances where uh, information about the likely changes that need to happen in, in a particular technical process does not get across to the governor. So there are these, I think that the governor's programs and development uh, partners uh, as a whole needs to, to ensure that we give back that ownership. I know that there are efforts to ensure that governments own uh, the, the process, but I think we need to ensure that they understand that we are giving that, back, that ownership back to them. It's about them and the results should be their results, not us reporting that, yes, we've been able to deliver during a quarter and that, uh, you know, we can say that, okay, this is a result for us. I think it should be emphasized that the results should be government results. They should own the results and taking a step back, they should own the, 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 the and be able to say that this is what we are bringing to the table for attention from development partners. Thank you. Thank you, Avalu, again, extremely eloquent and, and very important, all of the different points you, you highlight. I wonder, Laurelin, if I can turn to you for the two questions and just reflecting a little bit on what Awalu has said, is there something about the UK way of engaging in the different settings that it has worked in in, in Nigeria that enabled um, it as a donor to in a unique way perhaps, or, or different to what other international de development actors are doing, to broker the kinds of spaces um, that Awalu has talked about and to enable a wider understanding of why it is so important to incorporate citizen views in things like the budget. Is there something unique to the, to the British way of engaging that, that helps to explain that? Thanks. Thank you, Alina. So I'm going to cheat and I'm going to ignore your first question about whether it was worth it. No, like I really, I want to avoid any value for many questions. We are where we are after 20 years of consistent investment, more than 260 million pounds spent on governance um, beyond the states, but across across Nigeria. I think you, the way I really describes this partnership between the UK and the Nigerian governments is critical to what I was mentioning as to thinking and working politically. By working politically, I mean understanding your partners showing them respect, but understanding what's really driving and motivating them, and therefore be able to identify the right interventions. So I think I want to, you're completely right, it shouldn't be about recommendations, it's about partnerships. And the UK was able to do that extremely well in Jigawa. And in a report, we even say in Jigawa, the UK becomes part of the context. The DFID, FCD are now part of the governance situation in Jigawa state, are respected for the approach they've taken to build a good ownership of the reforms. What I'm really worried about, and I mentioned it earlier in my presentation, is the way the UK government has changed recently. And I'm really worried that the new way of operating means that these successes may not be lasting anymore, that we may not be able to replicate over the next 20 years what has been achieved over the last 20 years. So the two recommendations I would make will be firstly to FCDO in general. There's a tendency at the moment to centralize power in London but you want your teams in your embassies, your development teams that know their stakeholders who are working on 20 years or more of partnerships to be able to have the autonomy locally to make those decisions in exactly in the way that I already describes, partner in the right way on the right reforms issues. But for that, you need to have London letting go and making sure the development teams on the ground can do this. And my second recommendation would be to FCDO in Nigeria, once you are given this autonomy, you also have to reinvent thinking and working politically. DFID Nigeria, FCDU Nigeria, 
influence the rest of the world in terms of this approach. But now the challenge is the world is changing. Aid and development has emerged with foreign policy in the UK. You need to be able to work in this way in Nigeria. So protect your government's program from sort of ad hoc short-term budget tensions. See how you can make the space for your implementers and amazing staff on the programs like Awalu and partners like Idaya to actually be driving the reforms on the ground. So that's my challenge to, to the UK government. Thank you. I will hold off on calling on Sam just yet, but I'm, I'm sure he's uh, very eager to respond to, to those challenges that you have posed for him, Lorelen. Idayat, maybe I turn to you and your reflections from a civil society perspective. Thank you. Thank you very much, Elena, and thank you, Awadu and um, Lori. Interesting points. I think there are three things for me that the 20 years review has brought out, and it's not just brought out in book, but it is lived. One and very important is voice and accountability. In this last 20 years in the countries, in that part of the country, voice and accountability has become a way of life. Previously in budget processes, civil society were never invited, but at the onset in Kano's states during the budget, they Jigawa for me, Jigawa and Kano are my favorite states in when it comes to governance in Nigeria, actually. And I've worked there, and we're also looking at our own lessons learned. And I think these are important points that no one can take away, that voice and accountability. The second lesson is partnership. And partnership is broad and expansive. Partnership between the government and the government, which I will again put as it's been able to reduce suspicion. And I gave the instance of Jigawa now building it into all aspects of engagement with partners really for them. The civil society has got to be on the table and broadly and expansively defined. But it also gives civil society the opportunity to work with media, to work amongst themselves with the kind of courts that were created, especially when it comes to budgeting. And thirdly is that at the end of the day, governance reform are no longer things people do not talk about. There are now things that governments themselves keep talking about. The mere fact that this has become a repetitive, it's become like a lingo itself is an, uh, is an achievement that we really have to point out in the last uh, 20 years of governance in Northern Nigeria. Now, when it comes to the reform, I think from lessons learned, we've learned that context is very important in engagement. So when we are talking, moving forward, we have to then start institutionalize the broad and expansive definition of what civil society really is, that it includes the local group, the grassroots organization, the individual, the media, the local and religious leaders who have contributed to the progress in Jigawa in particular, and Kano and all these other states. And that amongst them, coalition building, that when you go alone, you go solo. But when you go with others, you are able to achieve. So how do we build in coalitions, lose, not necessarily network, but to engage at every point in time into this our definition, our important recommendations moving forward. And I think lastly, especially when it comes to the civic space, is the strengthening of the civil society organization. It again goes to the first because it's not just about funding. Most of these actors who have brought changes 
were not necessarily given a large amount of money to operate. They were supported. They were asked to attend meetings. They were given capacity beyond uh, funding. How do we then strengthen actors such that we have a lot of actors who are able to fight for rights at the end of the day, who are able to promote this governance reform for sustainability. So a strengthening, a very strong civil society strengthening program that captures all, it's very, very imperative uh, moving forward. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Hidayat. And in one minute, could you do your recommendation? <laughs> so important is, of course, coalition building. Two, of course, is the strengthening of civil society and a broad and expansive definition of what civil society really means, recognizing that contests do matter. And actors need to be more and more brought on the table. Thank you so much, Hidayat. Sam, I wonder if I can turn to you. Um, I think some of this uh, might sound very positive from your perspective, so please do share. Yeah, thanks, and thanks for uh, all of the wisdom from colleagues. Um, I just want to start just a little bit by challenging what Laura Lenn said about SDDA. And I think the, the organization's going through a very significant transition. I think the jury's still out, to be honest, on where this kind of politically savvy governance work ends up. I think the key thing is that these case studies show us how to do this kind of work well. But where it ends up, I think, is a bit unclear still. So first question was just around, was it worth it? Well, I think it was. I think there's a lot that the UK should be proud of here. Direct impact on governance in northern Nigeria. And we know governance in northern Nigeria matters hugely in terms of global poverty and security. But I think there's also a wider impact around implementing other programs in, in Nigeria. There's a lot of kind of very similar programming as a result of this work, and also elsewhere in other contexts. So I think there's a good, a good tale of impact. But I think, you know, most importantly, this kind of forensic evidence provides a, a better than usual basis for making this kind of impact judgment. I think that is as important as anything here. And then in terms of my uh, recommendation, I think it's, it's a very basic one, really. And it's just around making sure that the demand and supply side work are brought together in programming. So work on public sector reform, public sector governance is matched by work with civil society on the demand side. Because... These studies show it's a really key determinant of success, and we all kind of knew that uh, conceptually, but this is a very important set of evidence around this. And I think SDDO Nigeria has made real progress on this. This is a good example of a very joined up program. Um, but there are uh, quite a lot of other partners, and there that are not set up for this. I mean, notably partners like the World Bank and, and other multilaterals, where working with the supply side is less straightforward. So. I think it also shows the importance of donors working together in formal partnerships like the UK and the Bank have done in Nigeria. And of course, making sure that demand and supply side investments are properly sequenced. So it's an obvious recommendation, but it still isn't necessarily happening in enough programs. And I think the study shows how important it is. So um, I think there's a little way to go on this, and we'd uh, encourage others just to really take up this recommendation and make sure this is just the standard feature of programming, that we, we work on both sides of the equation. Thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Sam, and thanks to all of our panelists uh, for a very rich uh, discussion and in-depth look at, at how some 
uh, governance reforms have been possible in Nigeria and in, in large part thanks to the support from the UK government. Um, unlike Lorenen, I will say uh, also echoing um, what Sam and, and Awalu and Idayat have shared that I do feel like there is uh, certainly a sense that this kind of investment has made a very important difference over the long term, which is why it's so important to have a longer term perspective um, and that we need to sort of be much more nuanced about thinking about value for money because it does, the trajectory does matter a lot. On Sam's last point, and I wanted to emphasize this because I do think that one of the huge innovations of Pearl is that it makes an explicit effort to bring uh, citizen voice and say uh, accountability um, and capacity together on the, in, the, in, the, in the same program. And that is a very important um, experiment in a way. And I remember um, now maybe a decade ago, there was a, a, a voice and accountability evaluation that I and other colleagues at ODI were involved in. And one of the main implications, I really like Awalu's call not, to call not to say recommendations, but one of the main implications that came from that work is that it is essential to tackle not only the demand or the supply side of governance, but to look at them together. I know that LEAP started to work um, on a paper to look at this much more closely within Pearl and, and what kinds of uh, initiatives were bringing these two sides closely together directly as part of the same intervention and it will be really interesting to see how that that uh, work is carried forward in the next two years that 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 pearl has going forward so i i look forward to seeing how that evolves um and lastly before closing let me just remind all of you that this was the first of of uh, our webinar uh, meetings and we're going to have uh, the next one next tuesday at the same time um same place um, virtually, let's say, and um, that will be looking at more closely whether and how Pearl has been a program that is uh, able to think and work in politically aware ways and to learn as part of how it functions um, in real time. Um, and the last one of the uh, seminar um, the seminars that we will have will get to the punchline about whether and how governance has mattered in terms of improving service delivery, which I think is one of the great puzzles of, uh, of the governance agenda, not only for FCDO Nigeria or FCDO uh, UK, but also for a lot of different uh, donors and other actors involved in this space. So please stay tuned. Uh, very uh, many thanks for everybody who came. And I wish we could clap for all of our panelists, but I think <laughs> it will just have to be me. But thank you so much for, uh, for joining us today and looking forward to the next conversation um, next Tuesday. Bye-bye.